0: Turn your attention to Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, second chapter. Going to deal tonight with something that has been familiar, dealt with it over and over and over. The Lord and I had quite some talk about delving into it again, but. As usual, he's always right. And he knows what he wants. And he knows what we need. So without any further ado or apology, we'll enter into some Scripture. I don't think there's any doubt in very few of our minds but what the signs of time as described in the Bible are unfolding. Any Bible student, well, you don't have to be a Bible student. You just have to be a listener of the Word. Almost any individual that has any knowledge of Bible or Bible prophecy at all can see the outward signs, the signs given to the nations, the nature as it begins to fulfill its place and begins to come in into unity with God's Word. And everybody can see this and know it. All at the same time, there is that little imp of hell comes in and climbs on your shoulder and says, "Uh, it's been 2,000 years and people, every generation has looked for the coming of the Lord and he isn't here yet. But Peter meets that and says, but the day of the Lord shall come. Regardless of what we think and scoffers think or regardless of what condition we're in, when all of these things are fulfilled, the day of the Lord shall come. And we are very acutely aware of the things that is happening in our land, in our nation, in the world, and as nature begins to rebel. But I'm wondering sometimes if we don't in all of this, and I have heard television preachers minister it, and I'm not down on them, it's something that needs to be brought to the forefront, the coming of the Lord and how close it is, and that our generation most probably will see it. But I'm wondering sometimes when we quote Matthew, we begin to read concerning some of the things in Joel and Zechariah, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, in uh, Ezekiel, and uh, bring them into relation to where we live. I'm wondering if seeing those things don't make us a church careless and oblivious to the internal signs that is supposed to happen right along with these outward signs signs outside the church but not only were there signs outside the church outside in our nation but to coincide with these signs the Bible left some very good information of things that was going to transpire in the then Church of God and I think sometimes we rally around the flag so to speak on the Sun and the moon being darkened and uh, the earthquakes in diverse places and all of this, and we fail to focus our attention upon what God said would happen inside. And if we don't catch ourselves as to what is happening inside and get swept away, what happens outside is not going to mean too much to us. It's only going to be a proclamation of damnation. And so it was the Apostle Paul's, uh, very earnest concern and desire that he awakened. And he wrote so many times to Timothy, telling, the, telling him in the Lord in certain terms, left it to us that the time would come when they would not endure sound doctrine, told us that they, they'd be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, hinted to us that mankind would not feel like the assembly of themselves together was meaningful at all, that what they lost out on they could catch up on, and if they never did, it wouldn't matter. And on and on, These things, the Apostle Paul warned, and this one especially he pointed out to the Thessalonian church. We've dealt with it, but I want to read it again. Second chapter, first verse. There seemed to be some trouble as to when the coming of Jesus was and seemed to be some people that had different ideas and this is his admonition to that church. Now we beseech you, brethren... By the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. In other words, I'm going to give you some more, some other things. You don't worry about whatever might be said supposedly as by a spirit, or by a word, or even as letter from us that the day of Christ is at hand. And then he says, Let no man deceive you by any means. As if to say there's going to be many means by which God's people can be deceived. Now, if we think we've got a clear floating in and that all we've got to do is mention the name of Jesus every once in a while and shout and dance and feel a tingle up and down our spine, we're wrong. The Apostle Paul said there was going to be loosed in the world many deceivers which would climax, of course, into the one great deceiver. But he said, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he is God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not, that when I was with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth all the ready work. Only he that now letteth will let, and he'll tell he be taken out of the way. I would like to focus our attention upon the fourth verse, the introduction of the man of sin in the third verse. fourth verse tells what he will do and where he will be. Now most of us as Christians are perhaps sitting and watching for the appearance of the man of sin in the temple of God. And in doing that we are oblivious as to the deceivable measures that is happening all over the world today and entering into the church and affecting individual lives. And unless we become aware of that, Apostle Paul said, now that day will not come except there come a falling away first. Now it's been preached for a long time that there will come a falling away. As of late, many ministers are very much aware that that day is not coming. That that day is upon us. That it is happening every day. In its infancy maybe, but picking up speed along the road all the time, until it's going to mushroom into something. Now what I'm trying to say, I think tonight, is that we cannot sit idly by watching a few signs while the powers of hell move in our individual lives and move into the church of the living God with these things that is happening. Also Paul was aware that deceivers would be everywhere. Man would deceive himself. Powers of hell would deceive him. Deceivable means any way in the world to cause you to fall. But I want tonight to use this scripture of the falling away. Of course, that's a pot of soul. And uh, I want to use that in a little different vein. Because if I can at all, if I have it in me, if there's any presence of God around, I would like to stir up our thinking, our pure minds, and get us off of the rose garden thing and see if we can realize that we are in a warfare. That we are in a fight. And some of us stand sometimes real addled and startled when we become wounded. I wonder sometimes what we expect. When a soldier goes into battle, he fully expects to get some hard knocks and sometimes some wounds. And in using this in another vein, I'm not going to take away of anything that has ever been said. But I was reading uh, Moffat's rendition of this, and he sees this falling away. That word simply means to withdraw or to make oneself absent. In other words, not there anymore. That's to say that they were there once. Amen? You hearing me? They were there once. Now, we cannot point to a world that's never known God and the sinners out there, and they become oblivious to the church. We can't point to them and say, well, God said there would be a falling away. We have to stay in the confines of our own rank and file. Individuals that have been there and then find themselves absent, withdrawn. Now, Moffat sees this as a desertion, as from an army. He puts it from the army of God. And he goes on to say, having lost, But they deserted because they lost the vision of what the war was all about. Now some of us, sad to say, have not ever even been aware that we were in a war. We have thought we have been listed in party time and that good times ought to flow and that God ought to take care of us. And ministers all over the land probably are responsible for this. But I think you need to follow the Apostle Paul a little bit And whatever church he speaks to, it doesn't take him very long to tell them that they're in a fight, that they're in a war, that there's existing conditions that won't let them remain neutral. And that existing condition still is in the world today. There's something about it that a Christian cannot remain neutral. He's either standing for God or deserting God. And many times there's an awful feeling with the desertion of God. And he said they've lost the vision of what the war is about, and the Scripture says without a vision. You know that, don't you? Without a vision. If we don't know what it's all about, what are we fighting for? You see, for the most part, our World War I and II, and perhaps even our Korean conflict, boys were very much aware of why they were fighting. And we've just finished a war, police action, in which very few of them really knew what they were fighting for. And so they lost the vision, and consequently, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we lost the war, simply because there was no clear-cut guidelines as to what did we hope to win? Were we just having a holding action or what? And he says, having lost the vision, people have deserted the army of God. Once enlisted, once in battle, once in full way against the enemy, have fought him long and hard, and have lost the vision of what the battle is all about. Have lost the vision of the rewards of winning. What do we get if we win? If we stay true to God, or the tragedy of losing? I think maybe this might be number one on the slot that most of us are not aware of what happens to us should we lose the battle, should we desert. Or we're serving a merciful God. And it goes on to tell what happens when we come to this place of desertion. I'm sure these people still had the name of the Lord on their lips at times, but they had deserted the army. They had withdrawn themselves, made themselves absent from the army of God, one time fought bravely in battle, now have lost divisions, don't see the rewards, over yonder, don't see the tragedy of losing, and worst of all, they seem not to realize what effect their desertion from the army would have upon their wife, upon their husband, upon their family, upon their friends, and upon their neighbors. Now let's think a little while on that. You're in the battle. You've fought it. You've enlisted. You've felt the darts of the enemy. You've heard the machine gun fire. You've been under attack. Maybe you've been wounded in a sense. And as long as the vision of what your reward would be or the tragedy of losing, you were there, right there, fighting in the battle with Jesus. But if this drags on so long, And the first thing you know, we wonder, what are we really fighting for? Is there really a reward? And so what if I quit? If I just simply desert? What's going to happen? And oft times, and I've watched it, and you have too, we have saw individuals of families that fight and fight and fight. Their vision was clear. They knew without a shadow of a doubt that their presence before God was the preservation of their entire household. And then someplace down the line the vision was lost. They had forgotten what the disappearance of the rank and file of God's army was going to mean to their husband, wife, and friends. Now most soldiers naturally fight for their country. But I suspect if you had talked to any of them that was in the army prepared for battle or was in battle, I'm sure they would tell you that the first and foremost thought in their minds was the protection of their own personal family. Everybody that was overseas, almost everybody that had a family and left and went over there, let you know right away that they were over there so they wouldn't have to fight those individuals over here for the protection of their family. Now, if mankind can fight a natural war like that, could I ask you tonight, why not God's people fight a spiritual war with the same obligations? Now, there's a lot of reasons for desertion. We wouldn't have time to go through all of them. But let's name two or three. Mm -mm, Some desert not wanting discipline or subject themselves to any more hardships. Amen? Amen. Or they've endured some. They've disciplined in a sense. They've had their basic training in a sense. But now then, we're shaping up for the final battle. Talk to anybody that you want to that was involved in some of the great battles in First World War or Second. And they'll tell you that the discipline and the uh, hardships they were subjected to was greater then than they ever were before. And people get tired. And then, of course, there's rebellion. People get tired of the rules and regulations that are placed upon them. That those rules and regulations are a necessity. Rules and regulations in the army is not designed just to make one feel low. That they are designed for that individual's own protection. And God sets every basic law down before us to secure us and protect us from the enemy while we're in this army. And the hotter the battle gets, the more rules, regulation, and discipline that God expects out of his soldiers. And consequently, when the fire gets hot and the war warms up, you find individuals saying, I can't take any more of this. I don't want it. That's in the natural and that is in the spiritual. People at one time shouted the glory of God has now walking the streets and sometimes drinking, gambling, and all of this. People at one time enjoyed a communion with God have now deserted the army and no longer want to fight for God. The battle got too hot. And then I think perhaps there's one we overlook, something that we ought to look at. Desertion a lot of times. I talked to a friend of mine... I went through World War II. I asked him what was the hardest thing to fight against. I thought probably it would be homesickness or perhaps it would be fear. But he said the hardest thing he fought against was becoming so weary and so tired of just fighting continually. Of no let up hardly at all. No no time for any... uh, whatever they call that time where they take them out of battle and take them up and let them have some rest period. No time for this, he said. Of course, the battle was hot. And he said, the hardest time in the world was this. And then I'd get news and letters, he said, from my friends back home telling me about the wonderful parties they had and the good times they had. And here I was, bleeding, dying, sometimes fighting, discipling myself in the army, fighting for them. And I got to the place and I said, if they don't care, why should I? I think, and I don't think I'm wrong in making this assumption, I think probably it is this type of feeling that is causing desertion from God's army by the hundreds and thousands, that is taking one-time disciplined soldiers, individuals at one time were obedient to rules and regulations, knowing full well that this was for their life and that alone. But it's these individuals that have fought the battle, weary, tired, foot sore, wondering sometimes, why they were actually fighting it. Whose battle was it, they say? Am I alone just to fight it for what? And then in tiredness and weariness, he said, that's the time that I lost all contact with reality. And that was the time when my vision failed me. And that's the time when I sat and wondered, is there a reward for this? Is there something that happens if I don't fight? And then he said, My object was God, and he was a Christian. And he said, I went to God, and I asked him, Some way, God, keep the rewards of winning before me, and the tragedy of losing before me, and keep before me children. That would hear the cry of the dying and see the doomed and hear the cry of the damned if I wasn't over here giving my life, as it were, to battle and to fight. And he said, Then the we wearyness left. Now, our nation, out of all these, and there's others, but our nation was not built on this mode of thinking. Individual soldiers that have died, son sort of unnamed, we don't even know about their bravery. Bought our land and paid for it and bought it in blood. And let me fully assure you tonight that our nation was not born by that. It has not been preserved by that. And neither was the kingdom of God. It was born with a shout. Thank God it will go out with a shout. But in the meantime, there is a battle royal going on in the rank and file of individuals. And God needs every dedicated soldier he can get. And shake off our weariness and put on the battle cry of God. And say, hold of heart, it, for he is coming. In a I am Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The saints do have a warfare. Uh, Paul says, and you don't bother to just write the Scriptures down if you would, so you know that they're there. So I'm going to speed up a little bit. Paul says that though we walk in the flesh, or though we walk in these uh, temples or tabernacles of weakness and frailties, of infirmities, we don't war after the flesh. In other words, there's something higher that takes preeminence in our life when we join the army of God. There's something that makes these little things that used to shine so bright to us. If we get a hold of God, there's something that makes them dim and lose their value. And take on a higher preeminence to realize that there is a reward not that perishes away, but one that is eternal into the heavens. Thank God. And we can win the fight. Brother, not only can we, but we must. Desertion should never be. But Jesus knew it would be. And he went out of his way to use men like the Apostle Paul and Peter to some way or somehow pry us from our dilatory position. Pry us from our ideas and opinions and we'll just name the name of Jesus once in a while and make a good greasy slide into the kingdom of God. He let us know right away that we should not ever just fight for our own self-preservation. But there was a reason, and once we lose that reason, if we ever lose that reason, then we have no will or desire to fight. And that reason is for the kingdom of God, and for the children of God, and for our neighbors and friends, and it might do you. Mom and dad some good. If you'd look around to your little dimpled darlings and look at them and say, they're the reason why I'll wither the agony and the storms of this life. They're the reason why I'll not bow a knee to Baal. They're the reason why I'll never desert the army of the living God. They're why I'm in the thick of the battle because I want to have salvation for them. Hallelujah. All you got to do is look out into the world and see children taught nothing and let go. Hallelujah. And I might add to some of you saints tonight, I think you have laid down on Bible teachings and principles in your house. You have not taught the necessity. You have more or less uh, stayed upon that which is outward. We do anything in this world to make our boy or our girl be noticed in this world. We want them to have the best and there's nothing wrong with that. But while we strive to give them the best in this natural world, should their spiritual soul go empty? Answer me this. Should that spiritual life go empty and that spiritual strength go down the drain? You know the answer to that. You know that their life is worth everything. I'm sure if my dad and my mom looked over my rebellious, sin-cursed life and looked at me and decided that I wasn't worth fighting for, that I would still be lost and maybe in hell by now, that they looked at me and said, that's my boy, and I refuse the devil a right to have him. And we ought to look at our husband, wife, mothers, fathers, neighbors, and friends and say, I refuse. Devil, I'll fight you to the last ounce and the last mile. For that soul, I'll fight you for that. I refuse. We ought to say to let you have it. Of course, they're not going to like what goes on in the disciplined house. And for the most part, if they don't like it, they don't get it. Amen. That's not in the notes. But that's clear fact. And that's the world system today. And we'll get to that just a little bit later. And that's a Christian warfare. Now Paul tells Timothy that it's a good warfare. He says in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, he says, now Timothy, you remember the prophecies that went over you. Hallelujah. Might be good. Some of us would look back over some prophecies that went over us. Because prophecies don't go over us just for nothing, and they didn't for Timothy. said, You remember the prophecies that went upon you, that went ahead of you, and by those prophecies, you were a good warfare, and you fight the good fight of faith. I never had prophecies over me when I was a young minister. I never had prophecies over me when I was a young Christian. I feel somewhere, somehow, perhaps, I might have been cheated in a sense. And let me tell you something, I have had them in later years. And had not they been there, I don't know that I could award a good warfare and fought a good fight. Because many times, I had to live upon what God said to me, regardless of whether it seemed like it would ever come to pass or not. I had to stand on that. And Paul says, Timothy, you stand on those things and that prophecy and you war a good warfare and you fight a good fight. Now I think he was telling Timothy, now look, you're not going to see too many things out in this world that's going to urge you on. Amen? So what you've got to do is look back over what God said to you and take your stand upon God's word. Heaven and earth may pass away, he said, but my word shall stand forever. You see, when we go up and down, God's word don't. It stays right there. Hallelujah. It stands there for us to come down on. It stands there for us to raise up too. Now the war is against somebody. Who are we fighting against? Everybody says we're fighting against the devil. Yeah, we are. But it might come as a surprise to you how you're fighting against more than that. He's the instigator of the whole thing. But let's look at him first. Ephesians 6.12 says we wrestle not against the flesh and blood and against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. We do wrestle against that type of thing. Forces we can't see, forces we can feel and know that they're there, Darkness that seeks to cloud the light from our very soul, and rulers in the dark places we wrestle against it all. We do fight the devil. But there's another little thing stuck in here that we need to recognize. We have to fight the flesh too. Amen. Now you believe on the devil all you want to. That there's certain innate characteristics of this voice, and it's going to be there until you put on a new body. And you must fight that continually without let Of Because if you don't, it will dominate you and eventually destroy you. And as a soldier of God, now a lot of people have deserted simply when it comes time to fight this battle. and sets a hedge around us, and takes good care of us, and we enjoy the blessings of God, in it's party time, we put on our little hats, and we get a little horns, and fly out our balloons, and what a wonderful time we have in God, and how many people gather around the great throne of glory, and this is happening, this is in the infant stage, and there does come a time, and you have to brace up, and by the armor of God, and the Spirit of God within you, again to battle this place, which is yourself, and many of us don't want to admit this, and most of all, we do not want to fight it. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul says, I buffet my body. I slap it. I pounce on it. I discipline it. And bring it under subjection. In other words, he says, Paul, you can't do this. But why? Everybody else does. But Paul, you can't. And then he says, I have to slap it a little. I have to wound it a little. I have to take charge of it a little bit. And I've got to bring it under subjection. Paul says, you want to know why I have to do this? Because after I have preached to others, if I don't, I myself might become a castaway. The flesh is an evil thing. It's an Adamic nature. It was caused by sin. That we will agree. But it is not always the devil that makes you do it. Amen? It is you that wants to do it, and you let yourself do it. And many of us desert when it comes to fighting this battle against ourselves. You young people might listen to this too because it's your battle. And if you can't fight it while you're young, don't get any ideas that you're ever going to fight it when you get old. Uh-uh. When you've been introduced to the principles of God, you don't ever look for mom and dad to do it all for you. You've come in contact with Jesus. It's going to be your battle. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And not only that, you fight the devil, you fight yourself, you fight flesh. Now, isn't this fighting? Is this a playhouse? Is this a plaything? There's no wonder desertion comes by the millions. Of course, the majority of people are not prepared to fight. And yet the Bible's filled with it. Every place you look, I challenge you to bring me something that says it isn't. It's not in there. I don't wish to be harsh. And I don't like to be hard. And it's gets next to me. And my righteous indignation rises up and somebody paints a little guarded path that you walk through and just say, just lope on in to the kingdom of heaven and do what you want to. Because it's a lie of the devil. And not only are you fighting the devil and you're fighting old flesh, Adamic nature, and you're fighting the world in other words, the cosmos, the order, or the world system. Now Jesus, in John about the 16th chapter, after telling the trials and tribulations and offenses that's coming from the world system, closes the chapter with these words. In the world, ye shall have tribulation. In the world system, it's going to be against you every portion of our world system and our government is designed to tear down the basic principles of Christianity. And many of us sit idly by what it does. But if I'm not mistaken, there must be, should be a war against the systems of this world that they don't incline themselves and be a part of our house. And it's not easy. I said, it's not easy. All those innocent-looking babes with those innocent eyes and teardrops come in them and, the, and these doting parents look at them and say, I don't see anything wrong with that. Amen? Come on, Brother will preach it. And consequently, we allow that world system to come and entangle itself in our lives until there's barely time a religious prayer our life lived in accordance to God's Word. Our whole world has been taken from us. And a substitute world system has been inaugurated and placed right in our own living room. And we as Christians condone it and say hallelujah to it. When the Bible says fight it, fight it, people will fight almost anything but something that robs little darlings from something. I love my kids As much as anybody. Yes, I do. And I did. And a lot of things. There's a battle went on in me. Inside, flesh says it's all right. The Bible says it's a world system. It looks innocent now, but it's not going to be. And it gets your crutches on there. And it says they can't they can't do it. Are you going to fight for them? Are you going to let the powers of this world system envelop them? What are you going to do, Mom and Dad? Tell me. Are you just going to throw up your hands and say, I can't do it? That would be fine if your life only was on the line and I want you to become aware that it is not you stand on a threshold of eternity by your family that surrounds you. And you should say, I'll fight to the finish. And as Job says, though no, he slay me. But he says, you're going to have trouble in this world because the world system is completely alien and different from God's system. They cannot coincide. They cannot live together. There has to be a declaration for one and the other. But God said, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have joined the world. He didn't say that. I have nestled in with the world and we have become good friends. I invite him to my parties and he invites me to his. Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, Jesus was saying, I fought and fought on until my very system and my very soul cried out and I was an overcomer. Hallelujah. Now there's another enemy that we fight and that's death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, the last enemy shall be destroyed. His death. Hallelujah. All right. In fighting this warfare, I'm not blind to what it does. Because in this warfare, and Jesus, if you'll notice, notes it because he had to endure. He has endured everything that he ever counts on us to endure. He's walked every mile and sometimes farther ahead than he ever asked you to go. He asks you to endure nothing or to walk nowhere. But he himself has already been there, and not only has he been there, and he has made the way, and he stands at the end of it and says, you can make it. But in fighting this warfare, I think the thing that hurts the worst, causes more desertion than anything I know of, is it will invariably bring opposition from our friends and from our relatives and from our family and it should because if you're on God's side and they're not what do you want to admit it or not it sets you at odds and it should set you at odds Jesus himself said it when they said Jesus where'd you get those wounds He said, I got those wounds in the house of my friends. It wasn't my enemies out there that pierced me. I got them in the house of my friends. And that's where we get most of our wounds. It's in the house of our friends. And that borders us on loneliness and discouragement and on desertion as with our hands. And so I can't do it. And Jesus says, that's where I got my wounds and I made it all right. That's where you'll get yours and I will see you through unto the end. I will. Hallelujah. Praise God. Psalms 41, 9 to the 8. This was a prophecy. My own familiar friend in whom I trusted which did eat my bread hath lifted up his heel against me. Talking about Judas. My own familiar friend. The one I trusted. The one that sat down at my table has lifted up his heel against me. Notice when he said when Judas came out and kissed him he said Friend, wherefore comest thou? Hallelujah. All his wounds were there. But I'm sure you're not Unaware of this, scripture will let me point it out to you. Matthew 10, 34, 36. Jesus says, Think not. I am come to see and send peace on the earth. I come not to send peace, but a sword. Now you hear us crying on Christmas. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And the angel even cried. And Jesus is saying now, I don't want you to get a wrong idea. One of these days there's going to be peace. For I am the prince of peace. But for this particular time that I'm going to lead you in, I'm not going to send peace Rather, It's going to bring division. A sword is going to cut it asunder. And one's going to be on this side, and one's going to be up on this side. And when that happens, there is war. Uh, We can choose to fight it, or lay down and surrender or compromise. We can rise to the height of it if we want to. He said, I didn't come, but he said, I am come to set a man... At variance with his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of their own household. My God, God's trying to say, hey look, you're in a warfare and if you chose God's side and they're standing on the other, there is bound to be variances and there's bound to be friction. And he said, that's says it will. And you fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life and I'll save you and your household and you desert and no one will be saved. Hallelujah. Desert, Run off. And nobody will be saved, and you need to be very much aware. Everything's not going to be harmony. Man, is a Christian; his wife's not. Oh, let me tell you something: it's not the easiest road in the world, and it's not impossible. A woman's a Christian; her husband's not. It's not an easy road, friend. It's not an impossible road. It's one that can very well be traveled with you and Jesus, and it had better be traveled. Because you need to look around at your household and ask yourself the question, who's going to fight for them? Who's going to fight for them? Am I just basically going to turn them over to the powers of hell? Am I going to gather up my armor and put on the whole armor of God and curse the devil to his face and say, you'll get them over my dead bodies"? Hallelujah. Glory to God. Now this warfare ought to be carried on with faith and good conscience. Faith in your teaching that you receive and a conscience in your action. Paul told Timothy to hold these two things dear. And he cited some that hadn't. I believe it's Hermenius and Alexander. I don't remember just for sure. And he cited some that hadn't and he said they'd made shipwreck. In other words, if you cannot, don't have, faith and a good conscience toward God they're shipwrecked and he says that has to be fought with steadfastness First Corinthians 16 13 says watch ye stand fast in the faith quit ye like men and be strong and I think we need to be aware that lack of steadfastness hinders our spiritual growth mars our usefulness in God is a stumbling block to the people that are watching us and spoils our spiritual joy You watch an individual that's wavering, that has no foundation, and they have no spiritual joy. Nobody has any confidence in them whatsoever. And their usefulness is marred, and it hinders our spiritual growth. And God needs growing men and women, boys and girls, worse now than He ever did in the history of His army. He needs somebody that's mature enough and organized enough to serve notice to the devil that they'll fight him to the last strength and the last ditch. No diversion, he says. Hallelujah. Tells us we have to be in earnest and watchfulness. We have to watch against dangers from without. We have to watch against dangers from within. We have to watch for opportunities to be useful. We have to watch most of all for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. A soldier that is not watchful and earnest in what he's doing is a soldier that will soon fall in battle and be mortally wounded. Jude says in the third verse, I believe, and I'll read it, beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Peter tells us that we have to be watchful and sober. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, has a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You have to endure hardness. Now in doing these things you may lose a lot of what the world offers. Some of it you have to turn loose. But with visions and revelations of God you'll reap untold riches from another world that God says was yours. And eternity. Thank you Jesus. Self-denial. Paul again advocates discipline of our body. And he says this battle has to be fought with prayer, with prayer. Of all the other things that you have, watchfulness, sobriety, enduring hardness of good soldiers, self-denial, all of these are of no value if they're not mixed with prayer. 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 Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And last but not least, this battle has to be fought without earthly entanglement. Timothy bears it out in 2 Timothy 2, 4, said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. There are certain things in this life we have to do in order to exist. But God warned us about getting entangled with the natural affairs of this life. Because in doing this, we cannot be a soldier. But he's told us about a fight. Fight over the, with the devil. Fight with flesh. Fight over the world system or with it. a fight with death. And if we it just ended it there, and if we just stopped and said, there's a fight. There's a fight. There's a fight. And it would be a well, very hard story to tell and not too many people would be interested in staying on. The good part about that is there's victory in every one of these. Victory. There's victory over the devil. First Corinthians 16, 20 says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your heel shortly. That evil adversary that pits, pits and torments and advocates and moves. God said He'll bruise him under your heel shortly. And there's victory over place. Paul stood, and remember that time when he stood and said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then he makes that ecstatic utterance as he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Hallelujah. And then there's victory over this world system. John 5, 40, 4 and 5 says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, I I, I get amazed at at the simplicity, so to speak, and the simple-mindedness of individuals when they look and see that and think they see the Trinity in that. Think they see one part of the Godhead in that. Whenever it was trying to say far more, he said, who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. What was the Son? The Son was the flesh. What was the flesh? The flesh was a sacrificed lamb. What did Revelation say? We overcame Him and the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony we have to confess that He is the flesh and prove that he is victory. That's how we overcome. That's not saying there's three in the Godhead and we have to confess the Son is one. That's eliminating the depths in that thing. And we have to confess that he was flesh. And that place was sacrificed lamb. And that sacrifice was given. And we by that blood every day, every day, every day, every second, every minute, if necessary, we need to avail ourselves of the blood of the lamb that cleanses us of all sin and iniquity. And it's that only that gives us the overcoming victory that God said with ours. You'll never get good enough to do it by yourself. Hallelujah. I'm with Lord. I'm making you tired. Praise God. I hope I'm stirring some roots inside of you. Because I'm really not but about halfway done. Praise God. What do you think of that? Amen. How do you like those apples? Praise the Lord. Let's give the Lord a good hand. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I hate to disappoint you clock watchers that figure I should be done about now. Now let me tell you something. I'm not here to agitate you. I'm here some way to reach into the depths of your soul and save you and help you save somebody else. That's all I'm interested in.